Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week, the second half of our two-parter with Bob Wilson. Plenty of ground covered in this one, with Bob now established as Arsenal's new number one keeper from the late 60s onwards. We discuss the shock League Cup defeat to 3rd Division Swindon in 1969 on a terrible Wembley pitch, and how that second consecutive League Cup final loss triggered the wave of big success that followed under Bertie Mee and Don Howe in the next couple of seasons. Bob also tells us about Liverpool boss Bill Shankly singling him out for mind games on the eve of the 71 FA Cup final. We also look at Bob finally playing for his beloved Scotland in the early 70s, the early end to his career through injury, the switch to TV and the launch of Football Focus, the match of the day years with the one and only Jimmy Hill, coaching the great Pat Jennings at Arsenal as Bob pioneered the goalkeeping coaching that's now a big part of the British game, the shock move to ITV and the sad loss of his daughter that led to the creation of the Willow Foundation, the only national charity working with seriously ill young adults aged 16 to 40. Here's Bob Wilson. Arsenal lost the 68 League Cup final to Leeds. You're in the side when they lose to Swindon after a, a particularly stormy semi-final against Spurs. I think it's the second leg where I think it's every player bar the keepers who are going at it with each other. Was there always that kind of edge to the North London derby or was it simply that there was so much at stake in that game? No, it was always there. It was definitely, you know, North London, a mile and a half, two miles, whatever it is, three miles apart. It was always going to be that. And I mean, on that particular game, um, you know, we were beginning to, you know, they they were a terrific side at the time. You know, that particular game, I mean, it was only years later when I learned, you know, when we were eight minutes from the end, when Alan Gilzean volleyed me, I caught the ball and he volleyed me. And it was only years later when I was having uh, an x-ray that guy said to me, when did you have a stress fracture of your left leg? And I went, well, I've never had a stress fracture. He said, oh, yes, you have. It's as clear as anything here. You can see where the bone is. And he showed it me on the x-ray. And on the skin side of it is a big scar, which I still have, because I was stitched up the next day. And we never got, I never got x-rayed. 
In fact, I got injected for about three or four months and still carried on playing. But it was a stress fracture of the left leg and, you know, got on with it. I mean, when <laughs> it's a great story, actually, because when I had the x-ray and I was doing something with Martin Chivers, I said, by the way, Martin, I said, do you remember the, the, the semi-final? He said, do you mean when Gilly volleyed you? I said, yeah. And he, I said, I stress fracture that was. And he said, what? He actually sort of broke your leg. And I said, well, to a, in a, all effects, yeah. He said, I've got to ring him. He'll love it. <laughs> and, you know, and, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure whether the players are like that nowadays. You know, huge rivalry. You know, on our charity now, I have ambassadors for our charity, Aussie, Martin Chivers, Big Pat Jennings. You know, this is the camaraderie that we had in those days. But boy, we never wanted Tottenham to beat us or, you know, to finish the season off at Tottenham and win the league was just like, the greatest night of my life. The 69 League Cup final, a lot is made quite rightly about the state of the pitch, the horse of the year show, the pitch is just cutting up badly. But you'd also had flu had ravaged seven or eight of the squad, which I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. how, how much did that play a part in what was a lethargic performance perhaps that day from the team? I actually don't think it was a lethargic performance. I think the things that conspired, you know, you, you should never make an excuse. We had a flu epidemic and yeah, that definitely played a certain part. The biggest part was the pitch. That pitch nowadays, if that pitch was a cup final coming up for the League Cup final now, soon or whatever, it would never, ever be allowed. It was a ploughed field. It was ridiculous. So in one way, it favoured, I think, you know, the fact that we played a particular type of football. We were first division. Swindon were top of the third division. Or, or yeah, I mean, we were first division, second division, third division. I mean, they got up that year and they had an amazing side and they were brilliant on the day and they applied themselves, you know. But Peter Downsborough saved Swindon on that day in goal for Swindon and when even when Bobby Gould got the goal that took us into extra time I thought we'd win the game and I mean I think we should have won the game you know there was you know the first goal was a disaster I'm shouting at Ian you're pass it pass it pass it he was looking over his shoulder didn't realize he'd come so close to me and knocked it past me and then they scored from it and that that set us on the route and Don Rogers had an amazing game but the two players Don Rogers and and Peter Downsborough won that game they were the stars of that, you know, and, and good luck to them. The headlines were a nightmare. You know, the shame of North London. I can still read the Desmond Hackett Daily Express, the shame of North London. Uh, and they made, Bertie and Don made a couple of little changes. And we went from there, you know, it was, you know, that was two League Cup finals. The Leeds one lost and then the one at Swindon and then the following year was the start of, you know, what we were to become and, the Fairs Cup and the European Trophy. The first trophy for 17 years. And in that first trophy in the semi-finals, it's strange because I was looking at the dates of the fixtures yesterday. You played Ajax twice. You played Anderlecht twice. No league games. It's just four Fairs Cup games in a row. And the four games in the space of 20 days, which is very curious. That wouldn't happen nowadays. You run out 3-1 winners against Ajax in the semi-finals. That's a team that's about to dominate Europe in the next three years. What did you make of them? And of course, Johan Cruyff. And you go on to become friends with Johan Cruyff. How did that come yeah. about? 
Well, the, the, the coming about of the friendship came, first of all, we were opponents, uh, and it was Johan who was about to completely take off. I mean, in my, in my office now, I have two shirts up there signed personally to Bob. One of them is from Edson Arantes Danasiamento, Pele, and the other one alongside it is this picture of, of Johan. Uh, well, it's a, it's a Dutch shirt, but there's a photograph with it that shows him stripped from the waist upwards with these, this six-pack or eight-pack or whatever you want to call it. And the, the quote on it is, is, to Bob, I bet you wish you could have a body like mine, <laughs> your joking friend, Johan Cruyff. You know, so it's a, it's a great treasure. And, and the friendship thing came because we were on holiday together in the Algarve. You know, year after year, Megs and I have been going to the Algarve for a July, August sort of holiday. And Johan, Johan, Johan used to go there with his father-in-law, who became his agent. Uh, and I had a friend who became the biggest agent at the time, at the beginning of agents, and introduced him, and 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 he became Johan's English agent. Uh, so the friendship continued, and um, yeah, I mean, he he used to get mad because he never scored against me. <laughs> I look back now, and I, I see Bob Wilson having played eight times against Johan Cruyff, and you know, and my international debut for Scotland, and I'm lined up alongside Eusebio. And I have a, fav a favourite picture because Eusebio came down to the Algarve to see Johan, and I was there on the beach. So I have this famous picture of my kids with, you know, Eusebio and the great Johan. So it's, it's a favourite, wonderful picture. Yeah. So Arsenal emerged as winners in that semi-final. Ray Kennedy, I think a, a late goal against Anderlecht in the first leg gives you hope for the second leg. And eventually at Highbury, you turn that game around. You've won that Fairs Cup. In the meantime, after that, that summer, you're quite busy. I think you're part of the BBC team for the Mexico World Cup. Were you working in London as part of that BBC team? And, and did that make you eager to try your hand at more TV? Yeah, I mean, that was that was my punditry time, because I mean, people say, you you know, you had a 28 year career as a pundit. I hate the word pundit. You know, I mean, you're an ex-player. I, I don't know what other word you could use. You could use the expert or former player or what have you. But, you know, I hate the word punditry. You know, you sit there and talk about the game that you love. You know, where is the pressure on that? There is no pressure on being you know, earning a very, very good living for the modern guys. And so, you know, the guy who's in the chair is always the one who's who's going to be facing the music and, you know, getting the program on the air, getting it off the air. If you're working for ITV, meeting adverts and being counted down. You know, I, I famously remember the countdown out of Man United when they won the triple, you know, and being left 15 seconds to get out of a Champions League final. It was like, this is a nightmare. How can I sum this up in 15 seconds? So, you know, the, the, it, was a, it was a great time for me because I was very relaxed about it. And Cluffy was on there at the time, Brian Clough. And he was he used to have, I think, probably a love-hate relationship with me because I think he saw me as, the, you know, the college university boy and everything. But it was great. He used to take the mickey out of me. And, um, and I mean, he, he, you know, he was extraordinary in himself. I learned a lot from Cluffy. But I loved the punditry side of it. And, and then very quickly, they obviously, obviously started to believe that I was getting, you know, I mean, I was still only 33 when I, I had, you know, I had, I'd had a really serious injury, which put me out for seven months. And, you know, do I really want to play for any other team? 
And it was my love of Arsenal, really, that was as much a, the basis of my, I don't want to play for anybody else. I don't want to play for a second division side. I want to be Bob Wilson. You know, I've achieved here and I've got a long time to live. And it was also, it wasn't a selfish thought. It was, it was the brain telling me that, look, I could maybe have a career on the box, on the television, uh, because they were already hinting, look, Bob, we, we, we're thinking about, you know, when you finish, we're thinking of you becoming the first player to be a presenter, not just a football focus, but, you know, all the times I did grandstand, you know, I still am the only footballer to ever present grandstand four and a half, five hours without a script. Again, one of the experiences that was horrific was being in the chair on the day of the Hillsborough disaster, which I never, ever will totally get over. So there is a part of me that's very proud of that, you know, rather than just being the presenter of, you know, with autocue and everything, grandstand was the ultimate test for anybody presenting that you have all that time and you have to do your homework and make sure you can go to the, you know, go to Sheffield, to the Crucible when the snooker is on or go to Twickenham or go to this, right? We'll go and who's the comment, you know, so you have to do your homework. So I'm I'm still quite proud that I, I managed to, have a mini, you know, I, I never would put myself alongside the likes of Coleman, Frank Boff, Des, Steve Ryder, never in a million years. But, um, you know, it was, it was quite something for me to actually be asked to, to fulfil that role. There's a great picture on the Monday night when you clinched the title at White Hart Lane of you jumping in the air. You've got your goalkeeping sleeves rolled up, which was another Bob Wilson trademark. A late Ray Kennedy goal gives you the title. That team, though, had been written off a number of times during that season. Were you all absolutely certain that you had this in you, that the title was within reach? We knew we had the title within reach on and off through the season. We started, I think, with a 13-14 game run. We, the first game we lost, I think, was Chelsea. Or it wasn't probably four, as many as 14, but we had a good start. Uh, and then always there'll be hiccups, unless you're the Invincibles, you know, of, of the Arsene Wenger era. And we, we, we were way behind Leeds, you know, when we lost at Stoke 5-0, you know, they brought us in the next day and there was, oh God, what a meeting that was, you know, and everybody pointed the finger. But you know what, we, I always say we were this jigsaw puzzle. There were smooth pieces like Charlie George, the most naturally gifted guy, George Graham, you know, elegance and everything. And in amongst it was Peter Story, you know, the Nobby Styles of our side and the Ron Harris of our side. And we believed in each other. We became so, so committed to each other. We became friends with each other. When we went on tour, it was, it was, we shared with each other, you know, who would be the first at the bar. <laughs> there was a certain belief, but it, it only towards the end, did we think, you know, it's between us and Leeds United now. Tottenham aren't going to get into this. And it was clearly going to be uh, Leeds or ourselves. And then, it, you know, it came down to the most extraordinary finish. And, you know, to be fair to Leeds, they had a they had a very famous offside goal in, in a game towards the end of the season. That, you know, it's nowadays with VAR, it would never have been given or something else would have been given. But that's, that's how it was then. You played to the whistle, you, you took the... You know, you often had words with a referee and he'd have words back with you. Not nowadays. They don't even speak back to you nowadays. They don't even go and have a look at times at the monitor. You know, it's just driving me mad, the modern game and VAR. And so we got to the point where we had this run in and we had this famous sit down where Bertie Mee, in his Churchillian way, said, remember who you are, what you are, who you represent. 
And, you know, you've got a chance in four weeks' time to put yourself in the history books and your families and this country and all the Arsenal fans will remember you forever and a day. It was a brilliant speech. It was it was Bertie's way because he didn't have the tactical side. Don had that. And I think we all took it on board, but we never... I don't think we'd look then to see that the last game would go to White Hart Lane where, you know, you had to win the game or draw nil-nil. I mean, that in itself was a terrible... I think if we'd thought about it, it would have been terrifying. The day before the FA Cup final, Arsenal go to Wembley, I think, to check the pitch, have a have a walk around. I think it's been raining that day. Bill Shankly is there and he's got you in his sights for a bit of famous Shankly psychology. I think it's Frank McClintock who pulls you away because that psychology is starting to work on you. What what can you tell us about that encounter? Yeah, I, it was great because, I mean, I think we were the last two going off and 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 Frank and myself and... Bill came towards us. There was no team with him, by the way, at that time. He'd come in to have a look himself. And it was the Friday. I think they did go and have a look at it. But he came towards us and it was, oh, Frank, son, how are you? Hey, Bob, how are you, son? You know, and he was very complimentary to me uh, about the season that I'd had and everything. And then uh, I said, well, thank you, Mr. Shankly, you know, really respectful and everything. Hey, I'll see you tomorrow, son. Yes, OK, Mr. Shankly, OK, thank you very much. And Frank was saying, come on, Willow, we got to go. We've got to get on the bus. And I took two steps and this voice went, hey, Bob, nightmare pitch for goalkeepers, eh? <laughs> and he just planted the, the seed of doubt, you know, he, he, great. And it was like, I want to go back and tell you off and shout at you and Frank said Willow just don't even answer and he I didn't answer didn't answer I didn't even look and Frank said look ahead just go and we went and uh, yeah I mean he was you know I mean the psychology game is all it's still there in the modern game one way and another somebody will try and wind somebody else up but uh, these are great memories you know that you're bringing back. You mentioned earlier the famous Steve Highway goal in the FA Cup final. If I remember rightly, though, I've heard you say before that just before that goal, you made one of the best saves of your career or either side of that goal. What can you tell me about that? Well, the real reason for that as my explanation was that before we went out on the pitch, Don Howe took me into the chain, into the bath area and he said, Willow, I need one more thing from you. You know, he said, you've had a great season. You know, he was building me up. And he said, now, listen, I need you to tell me one thing. Who's playing centre forward for them? I said, John Toshak, Don. He said, I. He said, yeah, yeah. So how tall is Frank McClintock? Five foot ten and a half. Yeah, OK, five foot ten and a half. Peter Simpson, five foot eleven. How tall is John Toshak? Six foot two, six foot three. Yeah. Every cross that comes in, Willow. I need you to come and catch it, help it on, or punch it. Every cross that is within within your reach up to and maybe including the penalty spot. And that is, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I have looked back at the game and seen the amount of times I've come helped on, punched on, or particularly caught right at the final whistle. I caught one which was important. And so when we got into extra time and Steve cut in from the wing he'd had an amazing season Steve Highway and he'd just gone back past Pat Rice he won't like me saying that but he had (laughs) and I'm you know because all afternoon I've had this fight this this competitive thing with with John Toshak and I started to edge thinking he's going to cross it 
because I mean, you have a glance to see who's in the position and everything. And Toshak was there with with Frank in the middle. And as I started to move my weight to the left, he pinged it inside my right post. I still remember as I as I swung back, seeing it clip the bottom of the post, and it didn't deviate at all. It just clipped it on its way in. And oh God, I heard the Liverpool fans. I heard the roar, and I spun around, and Frank was there, who'd lost, you know, at Wembley for Leicester City in a cup final, lost in two League Cup finals. And I still think he was mouthing you stupid, whatever, to me, but he'll probably deny it. And it was a horrific moment. You know, it was like, I have had the best season I've ever had as a professional footballer, and I have now let Liverpool win the cup. Except I didn't think that at the time. And I had had a really top save right on half time as the whistle went, uh, which was hugely important to us. A double save from uh, Alec Lindsay's free kick and then a, a follow-up save. And then immediately following the Steve Highway goal, I had a very big save from Brian Hall. Very big. And from that save, we went up the other end and got the stupid goal. You know, the Eddie Kelly, George Graham, whatever goal. <laughs> it didn't matter. It was suddenly we were 1-1. One, one. Uh, and it was 90 degrees and, uh, you know, I mean, we we should have, at 90 minutes, we should have won the game 3-0. We hit the post twice. We had chances galore. And I just had the two, you know, I had I had had two very big saves, as it were, in the game. And so, you know, when Charlie came up and produced what only Charlie could really do, everybody was cramping up apart from the two goalies. And, um, and Charlie drew his foot back and Ray Clements at 21 or whatever was beaten right in the top corner. And you look at that Arsenal team and it really probably should have gone on to win more trophies, but it's another eight years before the club wins anything again. Don Howe leaves the following season. You've said already that was a, a big blow. Did Bertie Mee break up the double winners too soon? And if so, why? Well, yeah, I never I never looked on it about on that. Obviously, I looked upon the Don thing as being disastrous. In this modern day, you just give the guy the money that he wanted, you know? I mean, the game is all about money nowadays. You only have to see who won winter trophies other than the Leicester incredible season. It's obvious that you've got, you know, you need a, a shaker, an oligarch backing you. But back then, I mean, Don made his decision and went. And, okay, we didn't do well in the league at all the following season, which you could have a reaction to, but we got to the cup final again. You know, I missed that cup final through injury. And the following season, we finished second in the league. So, you know, a lot of people say about breaking it up too early. I don't see it like that at all. I don't really see it like that, you know, to, to sustain it, to be at the top. Nowadays, it's much easier because you just go out and buy the next, you know, whoever you want to go and buy at the top level of the game and the certain clubs who have the oligarchs and people who are backing them. Um, but I didn't see it like that at all. I thought we were competitive and certainly having lost the final against Leeds, the one that I had to sit out on the following year, we finished second. You know, that's we were runners up in, the, in the, what is now the Premier League or the first division as it was. The knee injury that you get against Stoke in the 72 semi-final, is that the beginning of the end for you, for your goalkeeping career? I didn't think it at the time. I didn't obviously think it at the time. I was, I was by this time, by the way, I was doing a weekly uh, pull-togethers on 
TK or VT in, at the BBC on players and tactics and things. So I was already, you know, still keeping in touch with the Beeb because they were the ones who, who were after me. I knew I had a serious injury because I had so many setbacks on it. And I mean, I ruptured everything in the knee. ACL, you know, cartilage a lot. And I, I'm afraid the operation was not. I mean, I know now I have a grandson who has done ACL, MCL, cartilage the lot as a 15-year-old. And I know he's out of the game for a year. And at that time, when I don't think probably you got the treatment as you do and can now and the expertise and everything else that goes into those serious operations now. I mean, I knew I was in trouble and it took me seven months to get back to playing. But, you know, I, I had to change my takeoff foot, my natural takeoff foot was left, left foot. And that knee now is a bent knee permanently. I walk a little bit like Douglas Bader nowadays, but <laughs> I'm getting old. And, you know, it's never recovered. But I played for another two seasons and, you know, you know, I, I never got picked for Scotland again, uh, but that was because Tommy Doherty moved on. But I think I played well right up until the end of my career, up until 74. And then it was a very conscious decision. I don't want to play for any other club than Arsenal Football Club. This is the greatest football club in the world. As far as I'm concerned, it has given me so much and I'm going to take the chance because what else am I going to do at the end of it? Am I going to become a manager, a coach? I did, by the way, come very close to that on two occasions. Yeah. But anyway, I made my decision. And um, to this day, I have a real problem with my left knee. Before we come to your TV career, let's not overlook the fact that you did play for Scotland when the regulations were changed and you could play for the country of your parents' birth. And that was changed in late 71. Tommy Doherty, I think, has taken over for Scotland. He selects you for a home game at Hamden against Portugal in a European Championship qualifier, 50,000 crowd. I can only imagine the intensity remembering Scotland-England games from childhood. What was it like to finally play for the country that you wanted to play for? Well, initially, I mean, you can imagine the reaction of my dad and my mum. You know, I mean, they didn't ever want me playing for England schoolboys, you know, but I was born in England, that was the rules. So, you know, it was just, for them, I think it was overwhelming. The Scottish press gave me a real hard time. They might deny it now, but there is no doubt there was, you know, the Sassanach. Is he a Sassanach, you know? You know, they hadn't looked in. My Uncle John had been, my Uncle John, which is my mum's brother, was Sir John Your Primrose. And he sent a very famous letter to the Scotsman at the time that there was all this furore, as it were, about, you know, is he Scottish? You know, what's all this about? You know, it wasn't about... Maybe he's the best Scottish goalie there is at the moment. He's be a great choice for us at the moment, as I, as I was looking on it. And, and they gave me a really hard time. And my Uncle John sent this thing in, giving my dad's career in the Highland Light Infantry, talking about our great uncle who was chairman of Rangers and, and had actually opened Hamden Park, the ground in which I was going to play in. He opened it in 1901. And there is I going to play in it and, you know, it took my Uncle John to sort of say, hang on a minute, don't be so brutal. And OK, I was the first English born player to play. And it was it was quite testing in many ways. I mean, you imagine I flew up. Thankfully, I had George Graham alongside with me making him a debut. And we got off the plane and we get on the coach with Tommy. Tommy's all over you. I mean, the character and personality was all over you. And I'm looking at the guys, Billy Bremner and all the guys on the coach when George and I got off the plane to get to go to our hotel the day before the game or two days before the game. 
And all I can hear is what my my mum and dad, you know, oh, 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 hi, hello, oh, oh, hi, you know. And I mean, like an idiot, I think I came up with a Scottish word. You can, you know, instead of, do you know, do you can, you know, which is ridiculous and ridiculous now when I think I did it. So it was it was really hard. And it was only the Hamden Park crowd that lifted my spirits. I mean, in the tunnel, it was like, I mean, my wife came up with my mum wearing their tammies and everything. My dad, again, too terrified to come up, stayed at home. And they came up and watched the game. And I was in the tunnel and I looked to my right and there's Eusebio. And it was, how the hell have I got here? How the hell has this Loughborough University boy got to where I've got to? And it was a little bit scary, but I had a good solid game, had a really good uh, save from a free kick, very spectacular. But the thing that made it was when I ran to my goal, the Scottish fans all were shouting my name and applauding. They'd taken no notice of the of the local press, as it were. It was wonderful. And George and I, we played the game. We rushed to the station, got on the overnight sleeper, back to London, training the next day, you know, crazy. There's one more cap against the Dutch. And I think by the time you return from injury, Willie Ormond has taken over and he's not too keen on selecting either Southern-based players or players who, who were born outside of Scotland. And your, your chances, unfortunately, of playing in the 74 World Cup uh, are gone. Let's move on to your TV career, because for my generation, football focus means Bob Wilson. And you presented the show for 20 years. You didn't miss a single edition. Over on ITV, uh, your great friend Brian Moore and then later Ian St. John and Jimmy Greaves, they, they front on the ball. In the early days of Football Focus, you'd meet up with Brian Moore, I think, and you'd debate the merits, the strengths of each other's programs. Why do guys like me remember these programs so fondly? I think the fact, the timing that they came on, I mean, initially at one time we were on at the same time and that became, I mean, the, the compliment I take out of that is that they moved their time because we still, the Beeb, no adverts and everything, we still had bigger figures. You know, it's a little bit like breakfast news now, you know, even with Piers Morgan when he was on it. So, uh, you know, the Beeb still, we still had good figures. Total contrast in the so, sort of the two programs that were there. We were obviously a little bit more serious. I would have guests occasionally or regularly, uh, but it would be about what was happening in the game and me going out and filming during the week at Anfield, up at Liverpool or wherever, Manchester, all around the country. With with the, the other two, who I, I love dearly, uh, you know, and got to know, Ian St. John, I mean, the laughs we have had about it, it was a totally different thing. It was, of course, football was the element that brought it together, but there, it was... It wasn't, yeah, I don't say it was semi-serious because there were some serious, very serious discussions within it, but it was a totally different programme, you know, and, and it's remembered more, you know, it's nice to hear you say you liked your football focus, as I get many people saying that, but there are, I mean, just now that we, you know, that we are in the situation now and, and obviously Saint and Grieve has been well remembered in recent weeks and everything. Uh, it's because, you know, it was, they, they, they delivered with a smile on my face. I couldn't come on the air, even if I had a guest and spent the whole of the program laughing. You were telling me before we started recording the interview that it was John Motson's idea to change the title from Football Preview, which is what the show, the forerunner was called under your predecessor, Sam Leach, 
who persuaded you to join the BBC. It was John Motson's idea to, to give it a different name. It definitely was, yeah. Um, you know, we were there. Um, I don't think Alan Hart, the editor of Grandstand, was in on this conversation. Uh, but there was a, a, the guy who, who was the editor of the programme, a football focus slotted into Grandstand was a lad called Bob Abrahams. I mean, such a great guy. So amazing for me. I mean, he, I think at first he didn't think I could, I, I had had what it took to be a presenter, but very quickly said, you know, well, oh, you're improving quickly. You know, you people are taking to you, you're okay and everything. And we sat in this meeting and talked about Sam Leach's time. Uh, and, you know, what else can we do within this program is it going to have a good a different look totally or whatever and Motti suddenly said it needs to be changed it's no longer Sam Leach's football preview and he came up he came straight up with it I mean typical of Motti I mean extraordinary brain on him Motti and it was like what about football focus yeah I mean it's it's wonderful that it's still there it's still the program that began at least with me being the original presenter of it. Still to come on when shorts were short. And my words, my honestly, my first words were, listen, Pat, it's great to see you. This is brilliant for Arsenal. But listen, I need you to know this. I cannot teach you anything. And I, I, I remember saying it straight out and it was like, I said, look, you know, there is nothing. I said, your style is unique. You are on the, the master of the craft that you have. My style is different to you. And he said, yeah, but yeah, well, maybe, you know, I, I'm 32 or 33 and, that, you know, I have only got another year or two. You're talking rubbish, Pat. You can play till, you know, the ages they used to play to, 40, 41. Thank you for downloading When Shorts Were Short. You might be interested in supporting the show's Patreon page. Supporters will get each new episode a fortnight early as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons. Show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short. Your support for the podcast is appreciated. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. In those days, you were working, in the early days, that is, in quite a laborious fashion with a Heath Robinson contraption that spooled 16 millimeter film. You'd select clips from that. It sounds like a very time consuming process. At that point, knowing no other way to work, did it feel like a time consuming process? Absolutely. 100%. And, you know, I, I was, I knew, I mean, I knew I had a long way to go. I mean, but people were giving me encouraging remarks I mean I can't tell you some of the things but you know even the greatest presenters have moments when the mind goes dead and you you know I, I had a one minute match report early on where things went out my head and it was just I mean I've never looked at it back but I mean that happened to Des Lynham you know in a world cup and it said you know that happens when you're live television and so it was learning on your feet learning fast to their eternal credit the BBC stuck with me and and there obviously was an improvement. David Coleman was absolutely instrumental in always saying, Bob, you can do this. You can do this. You know, you do this. And he gave me a few guidelines as well. And so, I, you know, I owe, I owe a huge debt to, to whether it be the original presenters who, who were masters of their trade, as it were. And ultimately, you know, I felt very comfortable, really, really comfortable. And they obviously felt comfortable because they said, 
we're doing Sunday grandstand, so we're going to want to be regularly doing Sunday grandstand. And then when Des was sent off or whoever it might be on a Saturday, Bob, you're doing you're doing the world snooker this Saturday, you know. So you know, it, 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 suddenly it was it was, I became obviously a lot more confident for them to stick with me for 20 years. It became quite a sad aspect of leaving, but it obviously boiled down to the usual, you know, who is going to present this and who is going to present that. You were part of Match of the Day during what I regard as its golden period, uh, working with Jimmy Hill. So much of the TV, the way it's presented, the way it's analysed that we see on TV these days can be traced back to so many of his innovations. I mean, whether it was on television in terms of the way football was covered or just in football, the three points for a win, all-seater stadiums, the man was an extraordinary innovator always churning out new ideas for me. And I might be in a minority here, but what I liked about match of the day before the premier league was you'd get two games in later years. It was three games. The highlights were what they would now call extended highlights. Now it feels to me more like clips. If I was eight, nine years old, and that was my first exposure to football, I'm not sure I'd know what was going on. It all seems that every, every clip is a chance, a goal or goal mouth action. Whereas you watch the old match of the days from the 60s, 70s, 80s, the highlights are beautifully paced. You're getting 20 minutes. You're still getting the analysis, but it's really about the football. I miss that. I know that it's competing now with live football, but for me, you will never better what match of the day used to be and what the big match used to be in those days in terms of highlight packages. Yeah, I think you were of a certain era. So, yes. you know, without, you know, I mean, the youngsters now will have been brought up on a different sort of era. So, you know, I I understand what you're saying. I loved working with Jim anyway. I mean, such an unbelievable character. And he never knew. I mean, he never checked his autocue, for instance. You probably have seen the famous one where, you know, yes, I spotted it coming through and, and, and thought, come on, Jim, you can't get this wrong. And it was about putting your clocks back. And the autocue had missed the L out of clocks. And I thought, no, Jim, you can't get this wrong. And he and he just came out with it. Don't forget to put your box back, you know, and it was. And then he realized what he'd said and went up. But then came and then the music came up. So he never had a chance to correct it. But he was I mean, he could be hilarious, uh, Jimmy. You know, we had the alarms go off one day and it was he said, what's that? And I said, it's it's the alarms, Jim. It's the fire alarms. What do you think we should do? And I said, well, I think we should get the hell out of here. The fire alarms, Jim. No, 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 no. The nation needs No, no. I mean, you're just brilliant, you know. At one point, Laurie McMenemy wants you to join Southampton. Was that as an assistant, a coach? Right throughout, you know, to survive for 28 years, I'm still quite proud of. But, you know, during the 20 years at the Beeb, there were moments when I wanted to leave for obvious reasons, you know, a knife in the back for whatever, you know, in the World Cups, giving me a position and a job, you know, when I'm the presenter of football focusing on match of the day, being given roles that just were like, what are you talking about? And Laurie was a regular pundit, as it were, on the programmes I presented and and World Cup programmes and all that sort of thing. And he just, he knew I was unhappy. And he said, look, I know, I know you're coaching the goalies at Arsenal. 
in your spare time or after every morning, you, you, you know, whatever you've done, the morning breakfast program or everything. And so he said, you know, will you, will you come down? And I went down, Megs and I went down and it was to be his assistant. And then in the week that he was, you know, that, that I was making up my mind, Leeds United offered him the job. And, and then I said, look, I actually said to him, Leeds, if, if you go to Leeds, Laurie, I'll come. Uh, if you stay at Southampton, maybe not. I don't know why I said it or whatever. But anyway, he chose to stay at Southampton. So that ended that part. And there was another there was another occasion uh, again with Bobby Campbell, who wanted me to go as his assistant at Fulham. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've often thought, you know, I would probably have been it's probably best I stayed where I was. You hinted there at um, some disgruntlement at your role in one World Cup. I think it might be the 82 World Cup you're talking about. You were working as a, a roving reporter with the England team. You did, though, I would argue you ended up with the coup of that World Cup. You got a an interview with Ozzy Ardiles at a very sensitive time between the two countries. The Falklands conflict had just come to an end. Argentina had been knocked out of the World Cup by Brazil. And you managed to arrange an interview with Ozzy Ardiles. And I think he tells you that when you arrive, not to speak a word of English, you know, such as the strength of feeling there in the Argentinian camp. How difficult was it to arrange that interview? Oh, it was, it was, it was sort of, uh, if you ran it on the television in a, in a sort of a story, you'd say, oh, you, you, you know, this is not true. You couldn't possibly have done this. But I mean, Ozzy had become quite a friend and he, he was in, incredible in, in, first of all, offering. And so, it, it, you know, the fact that we went there and he just said, look, you, you can come into the front hall, you wait for me, do not have any cameraman with you. You know, they've got to have come into the hotel separately. We went onto the roof of the hotel. It was, it was just cloak and dagger stuff. And so anyway, that's exactly what happened. We, we, the interview, it was an absolute coup at the time because it was Argentina getting knocked out of that World Cup. And it was, it was sort of a huge plus for me. But, there, you know, again, set against that are all sorts of things where, you know, I had, I had got Kevin Keegan to agree to do something when he got an injury. And then when he came back, they, they, they chose somebody else to go and do the interview when Kevin had already said, look, I'll only do it with Bob. But it went ahead. So all that sort of thing is people make their decisions. And I, I at the time got very angry on particularly on the Kevin Keegan one. And I went to Bobby Charlton's room because he was working for the Beeb and said, I'm off, I'm going home. <laughs> so there were lots of phone calls and there was a bit of panic. And then I was told to see reason. And Bobby was one of the ones who said, look, you've got a young family to think about, you know, your career's going really well. What are you doing? just because, you know, your ego tells you that you should be doing the interview that you should be doing. I agree with you 100%, but they've decided to have Tony Gubber on it. So, you know, those sort of things still, even now, I don't get the reasoning on those. I don't get the reasoning on, you know, something that happened when I went off to ITV and had a great five years in the chair, and then suddenly the knife came in the back again. You're still at the Beeb in '89, and uh, you you know you worked for for years with Frank Buff on on Grandstand, and you, you've you've said in Beyond the Network what a great presenter he was, presenting five hours of live sport unscripted. You yourself front Grandstand uh, around 200 times. Unfortunately for you, also as you mentioned earlier on the day of Hillsborough, at what point as the presenter that day do you grasp what is unfolding? From the start, 
I mean, that is, you know, people at home now, you know, see, the decision was made, first of all, you know, when they didn't open the gates, when Bruce Grobelar was shouting, open the gates, open the gates, these gates that barred them because could, he could see that there was real issues and everything. I mean, I got this firsthand from Bruce later as well. But I mean, in my ear at the time, I was hearing there's something going on at Hillsborough, as you know, uh, and then from the moment that bodies started to come onto the pitch, I was hearing up in the, you know, within the studio or up in, up above that all the bosses that were there saying, well, we can't do that. You know, the, 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 the two teams, Nottingham Forest and Liverpool, they're still in the ground. This, this could be a riot. This could lead to a riot. But I mean, right throughout that afternoon, I was hearing that there were bodies beginning to be laid out near the scanners and things, or, you know, in certain parts of Hillsborough. And of course, you know, the decision could not be made until, first of all, Downing Street had been notified and they were tuned into Grandstand and the latest. And it was only right at the end of the programme when the head of sport at the BBC came through from home, not in the studio, and said, look, you know, you've got some delicate things. There are a certain amount of bodies you need to say that there are, have been deaths. And this is the phone number. Try and find the words because this will be going to Liverpool fans. Obviously, it was the Liverpool end, you know, and it was almost like not a dressing down, but it was like, you know, can you find the words to do it, which I guess was a little bit of an offence to me, you know, because I, I know I found the words, if you're concerned about your any of your loved ones, this is the number that you need to contact. And when we went off the air, I think it was, there were eight or 10 known deaths. And we went, all of us were so by this time horrified, who worked on Grandstand, went to the bar to have a drink, there were people crying. The news came on and it became 25, 25 deaths, people now. And ultimately, although it was a year later when it became the 96th death, it became 96. So, you know, I don't know who, whether all the great presenters of Grandstand, whoever had been in there, they would have been, you know, first of all told, we still can't say that there are deaths, but, you know, I knew that there were deaths happening and everything. And that was very difficult, you know, until I got the word to say very close to the end of the programme that to get out the message that there was a disaster. Five years later, your time at the BBC finally comes to an end. The day that we saw the paper, Bob Wilson is going to be fronting ITV's Champions League coverage. It's a big deal. You know, it's a big deal. You're leaving Football Focus after 20 years. Was there a chance the BBC could keep you at the end? Absolutely, 100%. And by the way, Steve Ryder, on the day I left, when there was the empty chair that you're talking about, uh, he gave a little warning. He said, and by the way, Bob, we'll be watching you and watch you near post. (laughs) (laughs) So they let me go with a little bit of that. But I mean, my agent by that time, if you can call her an agent, was my wife. We understood the television business. We understood how it worked. I didn't have, you know, a a full time. Well, she was full time. okay, because she lived with me. But I mean, the BBC suddenly and dramatically, I mean, my my salary, ITV offered me a salary that was double what I was earning at the BBC, even with my work, which by then was three or four mornings on breakfast news. Megs came back and said, you know, this is the offer. And I said, it boils down to one thing. I need to know when it comes to the World Cup final. When it comes to the FA Cup final, you know, that great FA Cup final that I still, you know, obviously being involved, I still love the FA Cup. I want to know who's going to be the presenter, who's, what's the share going to be? And it was, you know, you're going to get um, a huge share of presenting match of the day. Great. 
And I don't think Des actually ever knew what share they were going to give me at that time. But the the bottom line was when it comes to the FA Cup and the World Cup, Des will be presenting it. I was going to ITV at the time when they were the only ones with Champions League. They were the only ones with the FA Cup. The Beeb were right in a, a time of, of struggling to get all those competitions. So in the end, it boiled down to that decision. I wouldn't have left. I didn't want to leave the Beeb. But anyway, I went and things worked really well for, for four or five years. Well, for, certainly for five years and extraordinary, extraordinary figures we had during that time including a World Cup game that attracted 26.5 million viewers at its peak. And that has never, ever, for one particular sport, ever been overtaken. And we presented that England game. I think it was the Beckham game. We got certificates. Brian Moore and myself got these certificates that I think we both hung in our toilets <laughs> to say that we were part of this, this particular, you know. So that, that was sort of the pinnacle. Although, you know, the 98 World Cup for me was was an amazing World Cup. I loved it. I thought I was probably at the height of my, what if you'd like to call it, presenting period of time, you know, and I felt confident. I thought, you know, we presented at every ground. We, we went to every ground in the World Cup. The BBC sat at the end, you know, my old company sat at the end nearby the Champs-Élysées and enjoyed their time in a luxury hotel. And we flew from the bottom of France to the top of France and from from top of France to Marseille and it was just amazing and Brian Moore was just extraordinary along the route with me and um, and became such a close friend and and such a close ally and um, and so I think we did a, we did a wonderful job there you know ultimately it's about figures and the Beeble probably probably claim that you know that overall that people will always watch the BBC without adverts and that you know that applies to this day. Unusually for anyone, uh, you've also had a third successful career. And just before we wrap up this interview, you've been very kind with your time and it's appreciated. You, of course, you did revolutionise goalkeeper training in this country. Terry Neal calls you in to train the Arsenal keepers. I think the first guy you're training there. And I think you say in your book, in all the time <laughs> that you coached him, you didn't actually have to teach him anything. And it's the great Pat Jennings. Yeah, I mean, it, first of all, it, it was great. And Terry, 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 to be fair to Terry, he knew about the goalkeeping schools that we were setting up and everything. He knew that, you know, I'd done my full badge, but there was no, at that time, no goalkeeping certificate, as it were. And so he was really quick on his feet to say, look, Willow, this is this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to sign Pat Jennings or try and, you know, and, and I will never, ever forget the morning that Pat arrived. You know, this is Pat Jennings, a hero at Tottenham. Even now, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame and everything else, still is an ambassador there on their, their match days and has a suite named after him or whatever. This is one of the greatest goalkeepers there has ever been. Uh, an innovator in the first one to save with his feet rather than plunging headfirst or, or trying to save with your hands, you know, just an extraordinary goalie. And on that first morning he came, I mean, we, we knew each other really well. And he came and I still see the smile and I still hear that voice, this great big deep voice that comes from way down. Oh, hello, Bob. I've never had a goalkeeping coach. This is Irish supposed to be. I can never, you know, I never had a goalkeeping coach before. And my words, my honestly, my first words were, listen, Pat, it's great to see you. This is brilliant for Arsenal. But listen, I need you to know this. I cannot teach you anything. And I, I, I remember saying it straight out and it was like, I said, look, you know, there is nothing. I said, your style is unique. You are on the, the master of the craft that you have. My style was different to you. 
And he said, yeah, but yeah, well, maybe, you know, I, I'm 32 or 33 and that, you know, I have only got another year or two. You're talking rubbish, Pat. You can play till, you know, the ages that they used to play to, 40, 41. And, and, and I mean, I think Pat will always say that my enthusiasm, I didn't teach him anything, by the way. I did coach him and, and got all the youngsters to learn from him and everything else. But I do think that the enthusiasm that I had for goalkeeping and the love of goalkeeping and the ability, if you still got it, and same applied to John Lukic and to, to David Seaman particularly, Pat Jennings retired on his 41st birthday. And I feel that I played a part in getting him through to that. His last game, I think, was Northern Ireland against Brazil. I think it was uh, on his 41st birthday. You know, he will always be one of my heroes and, and a very close friend and, and a wonderful supporter of our charity. Going on to the early 90s, uh, David Seaman has arrived at Arsenal. I want to know, at this stage, the game is starting to change. You can't pass back to the keeper anymore. The balls are getting lighter, as you mentioned earlier. So how does Bob Wilson, the goalkeeping coach, who's never played under these conditions, you're also learning on the job, aren't you, really? I mean, that, that side of things is also new to you. How did that work for you? Well, to a degree, you know, I mean, a save is still a save, even though you have to may, maybe modify it a little bit in whatever. I was still at an age where I could really smack the modern ball. You know, that first day when we got the first set of balls, these are the balls they're going to play with this season. And they were so dramatically different. And I was getting David, you know, if if, if in goal at the time, um, I'm trying to think, well, Lukey was there, you know. Yeah, Lukey was there at the time as well. And we were smacking balls and they were going up, down, right, left and everything. And it was just a nightmare. And and I mean, as regards the other aspects of the goalkeeping and all the the, the, the the sessions, they remained the same. You know, I did sessions sort of all over the place because goalkeeping coaches were now beginning to grow up. You know, and they remain they remain the same. The things that I did, I said to you about very early on, you know, about the the, the little session where I would get the goalies to turn. I would shout turn, which Dennis Bergkamp used to muck up every time he used to run behind the goal when I was coaching and shouting my turn. <laughs> and the goalie would be facing that way and he'd shout in his Dutch accent, turn, you know. <laughs> oh, nightmare. Uh, and so, you know, the actual the actual sessions then, it was adapting a little bit to the ball, but the actual basics of goalkeeping, I always, I never, ever put on a goalkeeping session with my goalkeepers, wherever they might be, whoever they might be, without them going into a shower and change. They had to finish on a great save. And if it took 8, 10, 15 shots to produce that great save, I needed them psychologically to go in knowing that they were capable of winning a game for the side, for turning the game, for making the save that made the difference. So, you know, the, it's different, but, you know, the, there are certain differences and certainly with the, with the ball. And, I mean, don't ever get me onto VAR or don't get me onto playing out from the back, other than to say it's a nightmare, both of them. Before we go, while the show finishes, as it always does, around its early to mid-90s cut-off point, I think it's only right to finish on the Willow Foundation and your work with it. And Behind the Network, which is almost 20 years old, helped me and many other readers, I think, process our own grief through reading about your grief, particularly at the end of that book, which is 
It's a tough read, but it's also there are uplifting words within that. You talk about the situation with your daughter teaching you how to live. And, you know, almost 20 years on, those words still stay with me. There's no reason why you should remember it. But I first interviewed you when the book came out in 2003, 2004. And I'd lost my parents at that time, and you know, one after the other. And everything you wrote about grief in that final chapter, and I've told so many people this over the years, particularly a passage where you're talking about training the keepers at Arsenal, you're waiting for them to arrive, you're sat on the goal line, sitting on a ball, and you're weeping. When people talk to me about what is grief, I say that's grief. Anyone who's been through it can completely relate to that. It gets you at any point. When you're on your own, you can't help but think about those things. I reread the book to refresh myself ahead of this interview. And I thought that final chapter, it can't get me again. You know, it can't get me again. And it does get me again. And at the end of it, finding the right words, the level of articulation within the Wilson family, you go back to your brothers and the letters they wrote when they were so young, your daughter, still young, finds similar words that your brothers did and leaves a letter to you. And you think, my God, it's it's hard, but it's beautiful. And I just want to know, almost 20 years on since you wrote that book, how do you look back at writing what must have been a very difficult piece of work for you? Well, that was Meg's really, you know, always, she was the one who said, um, I think she'd always believed I was capable of, you know, I was a university trained boy, I should have done it. You know, I wrote a thesis on the Roman gladiatorial games, and I wrote my other thesis was on goalkeeping. Um, (laughs) But, you know, she always believed that I had the capability even now when we've done speeches and things we do them together we 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 match words we we say oh well how about using this word or that word but i mean on on that occasion i sat down and megs i i would give megs i think i've mentioned that roddy bloomfield the editor you know just read the first chapter the first two and said bob keep writing and he, he kept saying it every time he got another chapter keep writing so i would write longhand and megs would then type it all out And she would come up with great suggestions about, you know, what about this? What about that? Um, So obviously the end was difficult. You know, even now it's it's sort of difficult talking about it whenever. But Anna made it incredibly, uh, I can't say the word easy. Of course, it would never be easy. But so much the culmination of Anna's life was extraordinary you know we we had built up to this this is your life program which unaware for me I had unaware that for a year they'd been plotting it and on about five or six occasions they'd cancelled it because Anna was in having another operation and you know and at the end with her mum she said oh mum I'd really like this to go ahead and it went ahead on November the 2nd 1998 and she died on December 1. She died six days before her 32nd birthday. And right, I mean, that night, you would not have believed that she had three weeks left to live. She was smiling. OK, she looked ill. Of course, she looked ill. But, you know, when I was caught on the training field, she'd said to, to Megs, they were already in the car going to the studio to be re, you know, ready for the recording. And she'd said to, to her mum, mum, dad'll got caught now, you know. And, you know, this voice came on, you know, and. I was about to tell them all off and you went, dad, I'm ready to party. I'm ready to party, you know, and, and it was meeting the family and the friends, which was for the last time, all those photographs and everything. Uh, But it was her words to us leading up to her death, you know, mum, dad, uh, don't let this thing destroy you. 
use what you've learned. And and she she you know if you if you can she just she prepared us, she basically prepared us, and she she was uh, of course your lives you know change. I mean Anna should now she was happily married. She should she should now we should be looking at more grandchildren than we have with our boys, and we miss her every day. And uh, she she was extraordinary in a way. You've got to remember also she was a community nursing sister, so she was she was somehow able throughout that illness to to understand what was going on in our minds because she was treating while she was still working people and families who were in a similar situation and lastly and i thank you for those words what does the willow foundation do and how can people get in touch if they want to support the willow foundation well i mean quite simply because of anna's age group we we you know when and when she said you know use what you've learned and makes was like what have we learned i don't we've learned that our daughter's died i know that but Anna was pointing us to doing something and we realized, you know, I'd been associated with Sparks, the charity and with other charities and everything. But we, we got to realize that there was very little in that age group, 16 to 40. So we came up, you know, it was it was the thought that and Megs went to medical professionals and came up with this idea that why can't we give, you know, there, there were amazing charities in the age group up to sort of 16, 18, wonderful children's charities. And even, you know, the, 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 the latter part of life, there's really good support. But hey, what about in the time, the best time in your life, 16 to 40? So we came up with, obviously, we called it Willow, which was not just my nickname, uh, as, a, as a goalkeeper and as a player at Arsenal, it was Anna's nickname, she was Little Willow. So, and Mitchell, her husband, was the one who said, look, you know, we're not going to call it the Anna Carey Foundation. Let's call it Willow. So he designed the, the Willow tree, which was our, our emblem. And, uh, and so we provide special days for seriously ill young adults in the age group 16 to 40, uniquely in the United Kingdom, the only charity that dedicates itself to that age group. And when we began, we began in a bad back, a back bedroom in our home in, in Brookmans Park in Hertfordshire. And we, we managed, I think, 18 special days in year one. And it became like 50 odd and then became 150. And then Meg's got her first secretary, as it were. Uh, and here we are now, <clears throat> 21 years later, 17 and a half thousand special days given, trying to keep the charity afloat in, in this awful time. But very proud of the fact that you know, we have continued and I, I take my hat off to our trustees who are managing to keep the charity afloat at this moment. And we're doing at the moment what we call positivity packs. So people who can't obviously have their special day and they're in that that group that is, is very vulnerable. Um, they are receiving, if it's a lady, positivity packs for ladies with always the kids in mind and similarly with the, with the guys. And that's been very well received. But hopefully we're heading towards getting out. It's, it needs to get out soon because obviously our reserves have gone down. And, and incidentally, we got up to, before the pandemic, uh, 40 plus staff. So the willow has changed dramatically. And, and uh, it's, been, it's been an incredible thing. And it obviously maintains, you know, our contact with Anna, as it were. That was Bob Wilson. He was especially generous with his time. His wife had left for an appointment just as we started our Zoom call and she'd returned two hours later and we still 
hadn't finished. The Willow Foundation can be visited at willowfoundation.org. UK. I thank them for their time in helping to set up this interview and I'll stick a link to the foundation in the show links along with various links to Bob's football and TV career. As always, please do rate and review when shorts were short on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not the podcast provider you use for subscribing. Apple Podcasts remains the all-important way for any show to grow. Thank you all for listening. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page on there, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me Shorts Were Short at 1607westegg.com. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTizen.com. The podcast can be supported at Patreon.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. Sign up for your season ticket there. Lots of content on the way. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm.